We're going to look at Revelation 8 through 11 today. When I was 27 ish, January 1997, in fact, um, my wife Carrie went to visit her parents. So she was out of town, away from me for a few days. And I got a phone call from her one night. And I answered, and she said, Hey, Dad. That's it. Hey, Dad. And it kind of took me a second to realize what she was saying. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, she was going to go take one of those home pregnancy tests. That was her way of telling me, it's, it's here, it's happening, we're going to be parents. So we were thrilled. I mean, this was, we'd been married a little over four years. Um, we were out of school, out of debt at that point. We, we were ready, we thought we were at least. And so that was the beginning of our big adventure of being parents. And the surprising thing, there were lots of surprises, but the really surprising thing for me was how much my wife enjoyed being pregnant. She loved it. And she would have been down for it eight or nine more times if I would have been. Um, but she enjoyed almost every minute of it. I don't know why. None of it looked fun to me, ladies. Not one bit of it. But she loved it. Now, there were, there were things that she didn't enjoy. The, the morning sickness wasn't fun. Um, being at her biggest in the middle of the hottest part of summer was not ideal. And then she started having these dreams. And her dreams, her recurring nightmares, always involved me and the baby. And, and in these dreams, I was the world's worst father. Like in, in one dream, um, I went to preach at the church and brought the dog with me, but I left the baby at home. In, in another one, very vivid one for her, I somehow managed to turn the baby into bread and then sliced it up and just started handing it out to my friends. And, and I, I have to tell you, I was, I was a little hurt that her subconscious had so little trust in me. And I didn't know who to blame or what to do about that, but you know, deep down inside, your, your subconscious don't lie. That meant she had very little trust in me as a dad. And then, as if to make up for it, I started having dreams. And guess what happened in my dreams? I was still the world's worst father in my dreams. It was total injustice. So, so you know, the one I can distinctly remember, we, I had lost the baby, and we're looking all over our tiny little house for the baby, and finally we turn up the couch cushions, and there, next to the spare change, writhing in dust, was our baby. You know, I'd lost her in the couch. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't know what to do. I was anxious. I was scared. We, we were confused. We didn't know what to expect. We had all this advice being handed to us, 99% of it worthless. Um, there were lots of people who speculated on the gender of our child. One woman was absolutely convinced that this child was going to be a boy. Why? Because she was carrying it out in front. And silly me, I thought that was the only way a woman could carry a baby. I just, I didn't know there was like a, a hatchback option or something. I don't know. Did I cross the line? I don't know. So, so we had all this misinformation and speculation and anxiety going on in our heads, but we had this book that became very special to us from the very beginning of our pregnancy, and it was called What to Expect When You're Expecting. Anybody familiar with this book? Yeah. Yeah, it's a bestseller for a reason. So basically, every week of your pregnancy, it shows you a picture of what the baby looks like inside of you and how it tells you how big it is, tells you what kind of functions are starting to, um, starting to manifest themselves in your child this month. You know, she's starting to be able to uh, grasp things with her hands. And this month, you know, this or that is happening. She'll start kicking this month, etc. Um, it also told us what to expect in terms of how my wife would feel. So we'd never been down this road before, and so we wanted to know, okay, she feels this way. Is that normal? We'd look in the book. Yeah, it is. 
It's very, very helpful in, all, in the midst of all this anxiety and information to have one source that we could trust to help us know what to expect. And the reason I say this is because of, the reason I tell you that story is because of Romans 8.22. Romans 8.22 said, and this is the words of Paul. Paul comes up with this great metaphor for the way our world is today. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. See, he says the world is pregnant. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This world is giving birth to something better. And that something better is called the new earth. And we'll hear more, much more about that as we go on in the study of Revelation, especially in the last two weeks. But for now, it's like in the, the hardest part of the labor. We, our world is experiencing turmoil and pain, and we don't know how long it's going to take for that birth to take place. And if you've watched the news, you've seen. This world is a dark place in so many ways. There's so much pain. There's so much anguish. It's good to know that it's giving birth to something better. But in the meantime, what can we expect? What's normal and what's not? What, what, is, what is something God tells us to look out for? And what is something that we say, that wasn't expected? That's what the Bible is about. And specifically, the book of Revelation. Now, I know a lot of people look at Revelation and say, oh, that's about the end of the world. And yes, it talks about the return of Christ. And yes, it gives us more details about that and, and, and reasons to get excited about His return than any other book of Scripture. But that's not really what it's about. Revelation was not ordained by God and, and passed down to John the Apostle and written in Scripture and preserved for us for 2,000 years just so Reverend Brill Cream could sell a bestseller. Okay? You can figure out who that is. But it's written to God's people 2,000 years ago and today and everywhere in between and every person who's going to walk in Christ's footsteps until He returns to say, here's what to expect. Here's how to be ready. Here's how to be encouraged. Here's how not to lose hope. Here's what's going on behind the scenes. Be ready. Be aware. Be encouraged. So in chapters 8 through 11, it really tells us quite a bit of what is going to happen in the meantime. You may remember last week, if you were with us last week, we saw how the Lamb of God, Jesus, the only one worthy to open the scroll that represents the consummation, God's plan for the consummation of human history. He's opening the seals on that scroll and every time He pops one of those seals, something big happens on earth. God's judgment is being poured out on this world and this world is struggling. Well, today we get to the seventh of those seven seals and it inaugurates seven trumpets. Just take a look with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. There's two things I want you to notice there. First of all, like I said, the seven seals are ended and now seven trumpets begin. Just like the seven seals, the seven trumpets will be sort of a, a recounting of the events on earth leading up to the end, leading up to the return of Christ. After this, there's going to be seven bowls of God's wrath. 
And they're going to read differently, but I think they're all referring to the same thing. This is the way life is going to be on planet Earth. The other thing I want you to notice about what we just read is this, this story of the angel offering incense before God and what it led to. And I'll tell you a little bit later why that's important. Let's read on in verse 7. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And let's stop there. Let me just say, each one of these trumpets that blows inaugurates some great disaster on earth. A natural disaster as we've seen, as we've seen here. A war, a plague, a famine. And what they're telling us basically is that terrible things are going to continue to happen on earth. That's going to be an aspect of our lives on planet earth as long as we're here until Christ returns. Terrible things will continue to happen. And I know, I know that, that we want to believe that humanity is making progress. Humanity is advancing. And, and I've, I've listened to podcasts recently that talk about all these great technologies that are in the stage of, stages of development that can make our lives so much easier. And just in the last 10 years, think about the things that have come into our lives that have made our lives easier. Also, have enabled people to get in touch with us easier, which isn't necessarily a good thing, right? Think about the diseases that have been cured just in our own lifetime. Think about the countries that once were in bondage and now are in relative freedom. But on the other hand, think about the countries that once were free that are now in bondage. Think about the the racial strife that exists in our country and in other countries and never seems to go away every time we think, well, okay, things are good between the races. Now there's another outbreak of violence and anger and, and, and discord. Think about the fact that Antibiotics that have, have solved so many illnesses have also given birth to superbugs that are resistant to antibiotics. And here we go again. And think about this most importantly. With all of our freedom, with all of our prosperity, with all of our advances and with all of our wealth, rates of, of addiction, suicide, depression, are higher than ever. All of our ease and prosperity and peace have not brought us satisfaction. Life is going to continue to get hard. Life is going to continue to have its slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Life is going to continue to show us terrible things. And Jesus wants us to know we should work for good. As God's people, we're called to be salt and light and make a difference in this world in His name. We work alongside people of other faiths and people of no faith at all to, to try to address the ills of society. And as we do so, we're glorifying God. But we also recognize the answer to these problems is not going to come from government agencies. It's not going to come from nonprofits. It's not going to come from human ingenuity or human effort. It's going to come when the King returns. And only then. So that's the first thing that this tells us. What we can expect is terrible things will continue to happen. Secondly, people will continue to resist God's grace. People will always be resistant to the grace of God. I want you to look with me at chapter 9, verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20 tells us this. This is at the end of all the trumpets. And we've seen all this awful stuff happen. And it says in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues 
still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. What Jesus is saying here through John the Apostle, He's saying, listen, you're carrying the good news. You're carrying the best news that's ever been heard. But don't be heartbroken when most of the people you share this good news with still don't receive it. It's going to change millions of lives, but millions and millions more will never accept it. And that doesn't mean we should stop trying. It just means we should prepare ourselves. There's going to be disappointment for those of us who follow the King. There's going to be people we love who steadfastly refuse. No matter what has happened around them, no matter what they've seen in us, no matter what they've seen in the world, how much they've seen light in us and darkness in the world around them. You know, I don't know if you've thought about this, but every family I've ever known has had at least one kid that won't eat. So mom or dad will make this fantastic meal and it's delicious and everybody's sitting around the table and enjoying their food. And there's Junior sitting over there with arms folded, mouth clamped shut like Fort Knox, and he is not eating, not one bite. Doesn't matter. He eats McNuggets and that's all, right? That disgusting rat meat. He won't eat anything that mom or dad makes. And mom or dad says, you're not getting up from the table until you eat this food. And so he sits there, and he sits there. And hours turn into days, and he still sits. He is not eating. He will die before he eats that food, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Humanity is starving. Humanity is dying. Jesus is the bread of life. He came at tremendous personal cost. He opened the door so that we could come in and feast with Him Once we feast with Him, we'll never be hungry again. And the world hears that and says, not interested. It's not really my brand. I don't really have a taste for that. might be fine for you, but not for me. It talks about idols in the passage, and you may say, well, I don't know anybody who worships a, a, a statue of gold or silver or bronze. You understand, of course, that idols aren't just statues. We worship things like wealth and power and pleasure and popularity, and reputation, and success. We worship these things because we think they'll bring us what we're missing. We think they'll fill that emptiness inside of us. But it won't. There's only one thing that will. We keep keep eating the things that won't satisfy when the, the bread of life is right there in front of us. Jesus told us parables all the time in His ministry to say, keep sharing my good news, but don't, don't lose heart when the people you love turn away. It's going to happen. So far, this is a really, really happy sermon, isn't it? You're welcome. Here's some good news. Our prayers do make a difference. These things are true. These things are true. Terrible things are going to continue happening. People will continue to resist God's grace. But our prayers do make a difference. Remember I told you back in chapter 8, verse 3-5, through to pay attention to that angel standing before the Lord holding that golden censer. Now, I know most of us are Baptists or other evangelicals, and so we're not used to the kind of ceremonial type of uh, worship of God. But if you come from a more liturgical background, you know what this looks like. You know what this little metal uh, ball is like which you put the, the incense inside. And that's what this angel is doing. 
And if you know your Old Testament, you know this was a common feature of Jewish worship. If you were a priest and you went to stand before the Lord in His temple or His tabernacle, you had to burn incense. And by the way, you couldn't just go down to Macy's and get some Chanel number no. 5. This was a special blend of spices that God ordained in the book of Exodus, gave it to the gave it to the high priest Aaron and said, use this incense and only this incense when you stand before me. And so this angel stands in heaven before this, this altar and he burns this incense before the Lord. And as he does so, it says the prayers of God's people mingled with the incense and wafted up into the presence of Almighty God. And guess what happened next? The Lord sent down thunder and lightning and fire and earthquake and what this is about, this is not, I don't believe this is a literal story. I don't think when we get to heaven we should look around for the altar. Because I think what this is about is it's saying, when we pray, God hears it. When we pray, God knows. When we pray, God acts. In fact, that's how God has chosen to do His work through the prayers of His people. He gives us that kind of agency. So when we pray, especially when we pray according to the Holy Spirit, and we're not just throwing out our wishes, but we're actually praying and saying, Lord, I want to pray for Your kingdom to come and Your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It has power. John Dixon is a pastor in Australia. Um, and when he was a teenager, he grew up in a rough neighborhood. Uh, hang, hung out with a really, really rough crowd. And there was this single woman that lived in their neighborhood named Glenda who was a Christian, and she took it upon herself to reach out to this gang of, not an official gang, but just this, this mob of unruly youth in her neighborhood. She would invite them into her home. She would feed them. She would lead them in Bible studies. And the kids really, really liked the food. And after a while, they started to like the Jesus stuff too. And in fact, one night, one of John's friends got very, very drunk, very obviously drunk. And he knew if I take him to his house, his dad is going to kill him, sees him in this condition. So they, they looked at each other and said, well, let's take him to Glenda's house. Now, when they got there, Glenda was in the middle of a very nice dinner party with all her well-dressed friends, church ladies, those kinds of people. And she didn't bat an eye. She just got straight up from the table and walked over to this kid and, and kind of helped him back to her back bedroom and put him in bed and let him sleep it off. And John, looking back on it, says it was really rude of us to do that, but we didn't know any better. We just thought, you know, Glenda was the only Christian we knew. And based on her, we just figured, well, Christians must really, really like sinners. It's a great concept, isn't it? It'd be nice if more of us were known that way. So anyway, John and many of his friends came to know Christ that year. And John felt called to be a minister. So he went back to Glenda a few years later. And he said, listen, Glenda, I'm, I want to serve the Lord. And I want to lead people to Jesus. And I don't know how to do it. And you're the only person I've ever seen who ever successfully did it. What is your secret? And she said, I don't have a secret. I just prayed. She said that year, some of my friends and I were in a Bible study and we just covenanted among ourselves, let's pray for God to do something big through us this year. We didn't know what it was going to be. We just said, Lord, do something big through us. Turns out that something big was you. When's the last time you prayed for God to do something big? Not for you. You do that all the time. I guarantee you if you're a Christian. When's the last time you prayed for God to do something big through you? Our prayers make a difference. There's more bad news. Those who stand for God will often suffer for it. Those who stand for God will often suffer for it. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 3. Chapter 11, verse 3. This is kind of a, 
a, a controversial passage. And we'll talk about some different interpretations in just a moment. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, what is this about? There are those, and, and many interpreters take this story literally. They say that in the future, God's going to send these two prophets in the midst of, of the end times when the world has is, is just become more evil than ever and these two men are going to stand against evil and they're going to be untouchable for quite a while. And, and, and some believe it's talking about Moses and Elijah specifically. And they say that for two reasons. First of all, some of the things that these two prophets do in chapter 11 are things Moses and Elijah did. Moses, for instance, turned water into blood. Elijah, for instance, shut up the sky so that it wouldn't rain. And also because when Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem to go to the cross, He stopped at the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, His, his body was transfigured and He looked uh, brighter than, than lightning and standing there on the mountaintop with Him and and and... Peter and James and John were Moses and Elijah, these two. And so they said, aha, those are the two guys who are going to show up at the end times. Others say, no, it's Elijah, but not Moses. It's Elijah and Enoch. And the reason they say that is because Elijah and Enoch are the only people in Scripture listed who never actually died. Both of them were taken up into heaven and didn't taste death. And since Hebrews says it is appointed a man once to die and then the judgment, they owe God a death. And so they're going to come and they're going to preach on the earth for three and a half years, and then they will experience death. And so that's how some people interpret that. Back in 1651, there was even a pair of tailors in London, England, named John Reeves and Lodewick Muggleton, great name, who believed they were the two witnesses of Revelation 11. And they started this strange little cult. They, they became known as the Muggletonians. And their, their chief doctrine seemed to be, we're right and everybody else is wrong. So, yeah, that's it. Their, their other doctrines weren't published. We don't really know what they were. But believe it or not, the Muggletonian cult lasted over 300 years. The last Muggletonian died in 1979. There's your trivia for the day. So, there's another interpretation. And that is that these two, these two witnesses don't represent individual, specific people at all, but instead represent all of God's people who stand faithfully for Him in times of trial. This is the interpretation I hold to personally. I could be wrong, but this is what I believe. I believe God is saying, as long as we live on earth, it's going to be hard. If you are faithful to God, if you are bold in your proclamation of His truth, if you, if you live with integrity and refuse to compromise with the ways of this world, 
You will face ridicule at the least. You will face social ostracism at the least. For all the, all the high school kids and young adults here, I, I just want to tell you, it, it, I was older than you when I realized this. You can't follow Jesus and be one of the cool kids. It just doesn't work. You've got to choose one or the other. And following Jesus is going to mean some people are just going to look down on you. And in some cases, it means worse than that. In some cases, it means loss of job. In some cases, it means loss of freedom. In some cases, it means loss of life. And I want to say real quickly, the Bible's very clear on this, that it's different when you're being punished because you act like a jerk. There are Christians I know who are arrogant, who are self-righteous, and who get maligned by their neighbors. And then they walk away saying, well, Jesus said we'd be persecuted. That's not persecution. That's justice for being a jerk. Okay? There's a big difference. And I'm not going to point out anybody in the crowd. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I'm just saying, check yourself. When people are being mean to you, ask yourself, did I do anything to bring this upon me? But if you're living with compassion like Jesus did, if you're just, all you're doing is just simply standing for the truth with humility and graciousness, boldness and courage, there are going to be people who hate you for it. There are going to be people who make you feel small as a result. That's just the way this life is. And keep in mind that for most of, of the history of God's people, it's been far more than ridicule they've faced. And even today, if you're a Christian in China, where the gospel is spreading faster than anywhere else on earth, if you're not a member of one of the government-sanctioned churches, you live in fear. You're going to show up next Sunday and the government has forcibly removed the cross from your church building, has thrown your pastor in prison. If you live in Russia and you're not a member of the Orthodox Russian Church, it is illegal now, as of the last couple of years, for you to share the name of Jesus outside of your church building. You can't witness. You can't invite somebody to church. You can't share your faith. If you live in many parts of our world, many, many parts, and you come to know Christ, you, you need to decide, am I going to tell my parents about this? Because if I do, I'm going to be disowned and I will have no more family. In fact, they may hire somebody to come kill me to preserve their honor in the sight of their neighbors. If you're a Christian and you live in Syria or Iraq, you're the target of a genocidal campaign on the part of the Islamic State. Here in America, it is getting harder. Just in my own lifetime, I've seen how much harder it is to be public about your identity in Christ. It takes more courage now than it used to. And I think that's only going to get harder. I think we can count on that. Jesus has told us so. But here's the good news. Our faith will be vindicated. Our faith will be vindicated. He goes on in chapter 11, verse 11, and says, But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. And if you take this story literally, then that means that Elijah and, and uh, Moses, or Elijah and Enoch, I don't think it's going to be those two British tailors, but... Uh, they're going to be dead for three and a half days and the world's going to gloat over them and send each other gifts and then they're going to rise again and ascend into heaven. And that's an awesome thing to contemplate. But if, like me, you interpret this to mean this is about God's people through the history of, of humanity, then what this means is we can count on the fact that someday, someday, Christ is returning and everyone who mocked us will see they were wrong. And I don't say that in a triumphal way because I guarantee you, 
God weeps for those who aren't ready. And we should too. See, when Jesus gave us instructions and he told us we would be hated, he didn't say, so hide your faith so no one pushes you around. He didn't say, but if you'll just stick to me, you'll be okay. And he didn't say, so put up your dukes and fight like a man. He didn't say any of those things. He said, so love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. What kind of advice is that? I would never say that to one of my kids who was being bullied. Jesus said that to us. You know why? Because unlike me, He's got the means to deliver justice for His children. He can say to us with a completely straight face, if you love your enemies, I will make sure you get justice one way or the other. Either your radical love will transform their hearts and they will become your brothers and that's the outcome I'm wanting. That's what I want to see. I want to see them come into the family and then all is forgiven. Just like you've been forgiven, they will be forgiven. And they're no longer your enemy because now they're your brother or sister. Either that or they'll answer to me. And that's why there's this terror in verse 11. That's why the whole world weeps and says, salvation was right there before me and I missed it. Free, eternal life, purpose, peace, joy, the, the love of Almighty God, there for the taking, right there for me, and I mocked it and I turned away. And it's going to be an awful day. But then here's the really good news. Our Savior will reign. Our Savior will reign. Verse 15, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. Anybody here know the hallelujah chorus? Handel's Messiah. That's what that's based on right there. Handel was thinking of that verse when he wrote, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords, forever. Hallelujah. Well, let me tell you why that's significant. Why that's so worthy of us getting excited about. Not just because the good guy wins. Not just because our side ends up on top. Not just because we picked the right horse. Okay? But I want you to think about this. You and I have never known what it's like to be under the guidance and the, and the rule of a righteous ruler. The, the best president we've ever had, whoever you think that might be. You look back at history if you pay attention to politics and if there's one guy you say, boy, I remember when he was president, he really knew what he was doing. I wish, he would, I wish we could get some of him back. Even him, whoever that might be, even he disappointed you sometimes. Even he, sometimes you'd find out some of the good things he said turned out not so much to be true. Even he, you found out there was some dirty dealing behind the scenes. Even he did things because they were politically expedient, not because they were right. And that's the best of them. And kings and dictators and prime ministers, you can throw them all in the same package. There's good ones, there's bad ones, but none of them, none of them, none of them can get us where we need to go. But imagine a man who never once thinks of himself who is courageous enough to always do what's right, who thinks of the lowest in society first, who stands up to evil, who would lay down his life to save one of his subjects, and who has the power to solve every human problem. The power and the wisdom. That's Jesus. Read the story of his life and ask yourself, what if he was in charge? What kind of stuff could he get done? Well, we're going to find out. 
And not just in charge. I, I mean, the, the comparison to a president is not really apt because a president lives in Washington. You probably never see him except on TV. This ruler will be in your life on the new earth forever, every day. And if that doesn't get you excited, you're either asleep or dead, okay? He shall reign forever and ever. So where does that leave us? My wife called me that night and said we're pregnant, and I got all excited. And thing is, when you find out news like that, there are certain options. You can behave in different ways. I could have said, well, you know, I don't really want this to be true. I don't want life to change. I could have denied that it was true. I could have lived as if nothing was different. I could have just gone about living for myself. At about seven, eight months, I could have told people, look, my wife is shoplifting a basketball. She's not pregnant. It's not happening. We're, everything's going to be the way it was. Or I could have chosen to live it up. I could have said, hey, in a few weeks, in 40 weeks, or give or, give or take, my life as I knew it is going to end. I won't have any free time. I won't get enough sleep. Life won't be about me anymore, so I'm going to live it up now. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry because at that point, life won't be worth living. Some people actually gave me that advice. Boy, enjoy life now, buddy. But you know what I did? I thought to myself, this is going to be the toughest, most important job I've ever had. I really don't want to mess this one up. I'm going to study as much as I can. I'm going to be in the Bible. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to get around guys who are good dads and watch what they do. I'm going to do everything I can because really, really, life really begins when that baby shows up. And, and I would be lying if I told you that that made me ready to be a father because it didn't, but I was as ready as I could be. See, Jesus has told us what's going to happen. And he hasn't given us all the details of how the end is going to occur, but he's told us what to expect in the meantime, and he's told us we need to be ready. So we could say, I don't want to think about that. That's, that's just too much for my little mind to comprehend. I'm just going to go on about life as usual. Or we could live life totally for ourselves and say, life is short and I don't know what comes after, so I'm just going to, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry and, and be about me. And, and pleasure will be my God. Or we could say, this life is just a dress rehearsal for eternity. And what happens next is what lasts. So instead of wasting my life building an earthly empire, building a, a great reputation in the community, building a fantastically successful career, that's not going to be my focus because all that stuff's going to blow away when Jesus returns anyway. Instead, I'm going to focus my attention on what lasts forever. And that's the people next to me. My family, my friends, my neighbors, my acquaintances, my co-workers, even the people I don't really like. All of them are going to spend eternity somewhere and I have a unique opportunity to invest in their lives and impact their eternity in some way. And I'll be honest, that's not the way I tend to think by nature. I need at least a daily check-in with God to get me oriented on that track. Because otherwise it's all about you know, football and money and food and stuff that passes away. See, the really, really good news is when Jesus came into this world, the Son of God had the same option we do. He just had more power. And he could have lived for himself. He could have had it all. Success, power, pleasure. He could have enjoyed everything this world has to offer. He had the right. 
But instead, he said, I'm going to invest in what lasts forever. And that is the people I've made who are going to spend eternity apart from me if I don't do something. He laid down his life, the only life he had, so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven. And now, when we stand before him as his forgiven children, we don't have to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to try hard to live up to your example. No, we go to him every day like I do and say, Lord, I'm stuck on these earthly things. Help me to focus today on what lasts forever. Make me an eternal-minded person. 